I'm not 100% convinced that people really know what they're talking about when they say we're unburned out. At the risk of being controversial, I don't think burnout is the key problem. I think people are fatigued. There was a guy that we worked with a number of years ago, very senior, was on the track to be CEO. We said the only option for you is to change vocations. That was one of the few times I remember looking somebody in the eye and saying, if you do not change something, and I mean very, very soon, you will not be alive in 10 years' time. And I would never say that, but I really meant it. Drum roll. Let's get into the five factors that make you burnout proof. You said, I really want to convey in this podcast that having a strong relationship with your significant other is a huge buffer or barrier to burnout. And I've come to recognize that actually some of the people who are most stressed or would probably score higher on this burnout um, uh, index that we've created are people that don't have great personal relationships. You really got to put your own oxygen mask on before others because it's impossible to be your best for others if you don't. Self-care is not selfish. It really is important to put yeah. yourself first yeah. or to yeah. nurture, to renew, so you can be the best version of yourself. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Today's guest has extensive research and experience in life and death scenarios. Working in ICU for 30 years, he is one of the world's leading researchers on stress and resilience. Dr. Tom Buckley and I began working alongside each other over 18 years ago with a mutual interest and desire to bridge the gap between the science of human performance and the reality of human experience. This led us to create the Strive Stronger Research Institute. Dr. Tom was also by my side when we co-wrote the book MatchFit, which is now, it amazes me, it has sold in a good way, over 95,000 copies. Dr. Tom and I have examined thousands, in fact, tens of thousands of people in real time to identify the components that underpin optimal human performance. We've looked at how do you stretch someone and have them not snap? How do you bend them and make sure that they don't break? Dr. Tom Buckley, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for that introduction. We have spent collectively hundreds and hundreds of hours talking about burnout. We recorded a podcast on how to be burnout proof. And that's the title on this. It's not just about burnout. It's all doom and gloom. It's how to be burnout proof. We've done hundreds and hundreds of hours. We decided we need to update this because I reckon, Angie asked me the other day, I've done over 30 presentations, keynote presentations for big audiences on Burnout Proof. We have run multiple 30-day boost programs, recharge programs. You've done a lot of presentations in, in the world of nursing and academia as well on Burnout. But we've changed our view over three years of being deep into this, haven't we? Yeah, we have. And I think it's a topic that a lot of people are talking about, but it's an area that we've been immersed in. The last time we spoke on this podcast about it, of course, we were in the middle of lockdowns and a pandemic. And of course, now we're considered as a society to be the other side, but actually it's as topical as ever. I reckon every sales meeting that I have, whether it's for a program, whether it's one of my executive performance programs or a keynote, the word, the B word comes up, burnout proof. 
rough frame for today because you, you and I start talking, we'll go down lots of rabbit holes, but to give us some structure, let's talk about the scientific definition of burnout, number one. Two, the prevalence right now and, and why you and I, our view on why we think it is just growing at an alarming rate or perceived to be growing at an alarming rate. Three, we'll talk about how we diagnose it with our burnout proof index. Four, the differences between individual and organisational burnout. And I want to be really clear at the start of this podcast, we are being proactive today for individuals. Organisational burnout, that's a big topic for another day. I don't. <laughs> it stresses me out thinking how we approach that on a podcast, but we'll really stick to individual burnout. And then we're going to spend the majority of time today Dr. Tom, on the five factors that inoculate you against burning out. So let's start number one. What's the definition of burnout? Yeah, I'm pleased you asked that because I think there's a fair bit of debate around the definition. And I'm also happy to talk about you know, the fact that I think actually the term burnout is being used and maybe misused a lot of the time. But from a definition really of what we're talking about, we're talking about people who express feelings of physical emotional energy depletion, and that may extend to chronic exhaustion. Very importantly in the definition, there's a, a mental distancing from one's job. So, uh, and that can start off from feeling negative and it can go right through to cynicism and even disengagement with one's work. And then there's the concept of having reduced personal accomplishment and from a professional perspective, that feeling of inefficiency. What's really important in that definition is that in 2019, the World Health Organization, they revised the International Classification of Diseases. People might be familiar with ICD codes. We, we use them in the hospital setting all the time for classification of diseases. And in 2019, they include burnout as an occupational phenomena. And they even have a definition, which I, I might read for you. Uh, burnout is a syndrome, so they don't call it a disease. It's a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. And it's characterized by the three dimensions I spoke about, the energy depletion, the mental distancing from the job, and the reduced personal accomplishment. But I think what's really important is, and it's more probably really important when we look at the stats in a minute, is that from a definition, an international definition, it's a workplace phenomena. At the risk of being controversial, I don't think burnout is the key problem. I think people are fatigued. When you look at what's happened over the past three years, we've had droughts, we've had floods in many places around Australia and globally as well. There's been bushfires. Then we had COVID with lockdown and some places were locked down on and off for 18 months to two years. You then add on top of that rising interest rates. There's a global credit crunch. There's a war in the Ukraine. In Australia, we've had changes in politics at three levels. We've had national, we've had local, we've had changes in state politics. On top of that, people have a life. Is it any wonder that people are feeling tired and fatigued? There's been no respite. It's easy to say we're burnt out. I actually think a lot of people are just really bloody tired. I'm not 100% convinced that people really know what they're talking about when they say we're unburned out. I think people, you're right, people may feel they have a lack of energy, they may have a lack of motivation, they may you know, maybe have a realisation that many things in their lives are not where they want them to be. And that gets packaged up as burnout. And often the workplace becomes the centre of that. And because maybe it's the one thing that 
people can point to or maybe have the ability to change. But I think a lot of people are using burnout outside of the context of work, you know, relationship burnout, burnout from overtraining, you know, if you're an athlete. The terminology has moved away from the original definition. Remember that when burnout was first coined back in the, you know, maybe 40, 50 years ago, it was very much a term related to an individual if you picture them on the treadmill, working, 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 focused, working, 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 and then eventually they burn out because it's not sustainable. But I think that definition has evolved now to encompass many, many things. And the overlap between burnout and exhaustion, depression, distress, feeling down, feeling like you're not performing like you were maybe 20 years ago, which could be an age decrement, they're now very much considered typical burnout symptoms. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. According to the Microsoft Work Trend Index, which is a global survey of over 20,000 workers, Dr. Tom, 48% of employees and 53% of managers report that they're feeling burned out at work. You've got some other stats on this, which is a little bit sobering. Yeah, I, I think the it once again, just put it in context that when you shine a light on something, the prevalence always goes up. Okay, so, so we have got to shine a light on this. Now, maybe what we're doing is actually uncovering what's always been going on, but people didn't know how to report it or people didn't feel safe to report it. Um, but that's very, very true. The, some of the global surveys rank us, you know, you know, say in Australia, that true burnout rates are somewhere around 30% across cross-section of the population, significantly higher in some of the, the healthcare professionals, up to 70, 75% in doctors and nurses in, in certain contexts of care. But we don't rank as bad as some countries such as Japan, where in November 22, the rates were at 50%, France 48%. And as you know, next week, I'm going to Germany for some research work. Um, they rank about 10% higher than us. So you know, there is a context to it, but the stats are, I think one of the stats that really concerns me a little bit was the Forbes report in January 2023. We spoke about this recently too, didn't we? And that there was a, a significantly higher proportion of female workers showing uh, burnout compared to their male counterparts, almost a third more females reporting burnout compared to men. And in the younger age groups, so of 18 to 29-year-old age groups, we're almost twice as likely to report burnout. So in that younger age group, my, my view at the risk of sounding like the old guy, when I was a young fella, Dr. Tom, <laughs> everything was much harder, but we did have more challenge. So I think for a lot of those borderline Gen Ys and definitely the millennials coming through, 
they haven't had a lot of challenge. They haven't had a lot of struggle. So for many of those people, COVID was the first real disruption that they've had to their lives. And and I don't think that resilience was there. And, and I know there'll be some people listening to this, screeching their brakes, yelling on the train, pulling up on the bike, going, he's got no idea. I'm being very generic. But if you look back the way we've evolved generation after generation, when I talk to my mum and dad, like stress for them growing up on a farm, some sometimes they didn't eat. If they didn't get the harvest right and the crops right and the weather right, which they couldn't really control, they might have a really lean three months. Not many people now, 25, 30 under, have had a really lean three months in their life. Probably had too much. Yeah, I don't think I don't I think most people would agree that younger generations maybe haven't experienced as much hardship as what our grandparents and even our parents have you know listening to my father before he passed and my grandfather that was very close to growing up yeah they they endured a lot of hardship and it was almost expected and you you know the sort of concept of digging and get through it so i think for i think you're right for a lot of younger generations that we've particularly in 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 our environment in the western world hardship hardship is something that we haven't had to endure but i also think just to balance that a little bit that i think back in my parents and grandparents generation talking about their emotions and feelings and recognizing it and feeling safe to disclose that probably wasn't the norm or well, the, the word vulnerability and feelings were bad yeah, words so look yeah. I, I do agree i'm being a little bit provocative on that as well we are much more comfortable thank goodness talking about the ups and the downs, the, the highs and the lows. So yeah, you balance view that people are talking about this. One thing that is a given, and, and I am black and white on this, one of the reasons why so many people are fatigued, why we have a global human energy crisis, there's no respite I mentioned at the start. But if we look into this in a little bit more detail, it's called surge capacity. I read an article recently, surge capacity is spent. And this was in a very reputable Australian executive magazine. It got loads of comments and feedback. Surge capacity is a set of mental and physical adaptive systems. And it gives us that extra energy for when we need short boosts. Now, this is good around stress. So Dr. Tom, our physiology wired thousands, thousands of years ago to give us surge capacity. But our biology hasn't been designed for extended periods without downregulation. And if you look over the past three years, there's been very little re recharge, renew, recalibrate, refocus. So they're always in those beta brainwaves. They're not going alpha or the deeper, slower brainwaves. So is it any wonder people are just going, oh, I've got to tap out. This is too much. A hundred percent, you know, and, and we can get into the stats of this as we as we progress in this talk. But, you know, we, we know that over 50 percent of people don't get sufficient sleep. Well, there's your trigger immediately. You know, you're immediately now working with suboptimal physiology, psychology. Your emotions are going to be expressed differently just just from that alone. So, you know, I've said it before and I say it all the time at the heart of burnout is lack of recovery. If you ask people, and we do when we work with clients, and we say, where's your non-thinking time, let alone your non-doing time? People's usually when they get to bed, it's almost too late trying to unravel the day. We term that psychological detachment, but sometimes we need to just psychologically detach 
from the world. We have a burnout symptoms index, which has got your greasy fingerprints all over it, Dr. Tom. I said to you, I think we need a way of assessing where people are. And we've put a model together on this, which really resonates with people. I'll explain the model and then you can give a bit of the science behind it. We look at four different levels on this model and Wiz will add a download of this model on the show notes as well. So low risk is in the green. That's where people are flourishing or you are match fit. Life is easy. You look in the mirror and go, I am on fire in every aspect of my life. Moderate risk, the word we use on that is irritability. So you don't feel like you're on fire, but you also don't feel that your backside has got bunts and burners on it and you're just not coping at all. And Dr. Tom, I like to personally and with at the coaching clients, especially the founders, CEOs and execs you and I work with together, get the model on dancing between the yellow and the green. So that moderate risk, because if you're not pushing yourself, if you're not changing, challenging, growing, adapting, and if you're just in the green, I think you get bored. But where this becomes a challenge, and you mentioned this earlier in the interview, it's the cynicism. It's where you start to get angry, you feel overwhelmed, there's disillusionment, and everything becomes a problem. Oh, this workplace, God, you know what she does, and all those corridor conversations become amplified. Now, if you feel yourself on the orange, pull the parachute. You've got to get back into the green. And especially when we talk about downregulate, that's where you need to go. Because if you don't, you get into the red zone, which is extreme risk. And that's a disconnection, disconnected in all parts of your life, personally, physically, emotionally, socially. And we've worked with a few people over the years, Dr. Tom, the research shows this, but our practice, when you get into the extreme red, there's no going back. It's like a piece of toast that if you've burnt that toast a little bit, you can scrape it back and it's salvageable. Or if you've had that bread and the toaster for way too long and it's cinder, you've got to get out of there. And and there was a guy that we worked with a number of years ago, if you remember, very senior, was on a track to be CEO of a publicly listed company, a top 40, top 50 ASX company. And when we worked with him, We said the only option for you is to change vocations. I still believe he's got his own business up on the northern beaches. He's he's happy, but he had Mm. to pull out of the career he had. Yeah, I often refer to that individual anonymously because I often present data. And I was one of the few times I remember saying to him, if you continue where you are, you will not be alive in 10 years' time because his physiology was at a point where it was not sustainable with life. And it was his physiology was at a point where you're going to start getting expression of diseases. And some of them can be chronic diseases, but you can get acute exacerbations that at the age of 50 would you might not survive. So that was one of the few times I remember looking somebody in the eye and saying, if you do not change something, and I mean very, very soon, you will not be alive in 10 years' time. And I would never say that. Prognostics are incredibly difficult in any arena of health, well-being, or medicine. So I would never hardly ever say that, but I really meant it. For anyone listening to this going, yeah, how do I know? If you've got a team or even a large organization and you want to find out, get in contact with us and we can put you, your team, through the Burnout Symptoms Index. And it really is a good way, Tom, of showing people. And the color, I find, depersonalizes it because we're not saying you're burnt out. 
she's not. We're just saying at the moment, a real point in time, hey, you're flourishing or this person might be in a stage of irritability in the yellow or these people may be in that cynical orange phase. And if you are in the red, yeah, don't go past go, don't collect 200 bucks. You've got to do an absolute focus on re, recovering, regenerating, renewing, so you don't become a statistic like that client we just spoke about. Organisational burnout, this is cultural and it occurs when there is a paralysed state which the organisation can no longer positively change without external intervention. It's multifactorial. I think in research, Tom, if we don't really know how to put our finger on an area, we go, it is multifactorial, right? But there are also a number of common triggers, including constant change and transformation. There's a big rise in the discussion around organisational burnout. Now, whenever we are in a briefing and an organisation says, can you come and do consulting on this? We'll go, well, okay, let's look at that in a more deeper macro level because we know in the point of this podcast, individual burnout, five key factors that absolutely unequivocally inoculate you against burning out from an individual. But if you're in an organization that's toxic, that doesn't have the right processes and systems, if you don't have the right resources, it's a bigger discussion, isn't it? Looking at how do you fix organisational burnout? So how do you approach that in the consulting you do when you realise it's organisational? I much prefer working with individuals, but I also recognise that an organisation is a collection of individuals. And so if you can uh, empower the right individuals to become change champions or to lead a discussion um, that then you can, as an organisation, start to get a shift. I think one thing I'm very conscious of is that often in organisations that have got organisational burnout, they don't always recognise what the triggers are or what the, the pressure points are. And the concept that uh, you know an organisation itself in its practices and its processes and its expectations may actually be the problem. So therefore, thinking it can also be the solution, um, I, I often think might be a flawed concept that actually, you know, you, you can't enforce a solution for a problem. You've got, you've really got to step back. And if individuals do that themselves, then they can start to, you know, create influence. But actually, I think this is where you really need to put the white flag up and say, okay, we really do need a, a somebody now who is from, you know, not got a bias here you know, preferably not in the organization itself to look in and advise us. I, I quote the wonderful mental skills coach for the All Blacks. He's been there for over 20 years, Gilbert Anoka. Gilbert has a beautiful metaphor on looking at a system. Before diving in, you step back, you then step up and have a macro view. You then come up with new mental models, framework, support, and then step forward. So when we do do this with an organisation, we get them to step back. We get them to step up and look. And I say this, Dr. Tom, to leaders, what are you going to do? What is your contingency if everyone goes, ha, we found the problem? And it's you. And that creates a really interesting conversation. So yeah, there is a process around organisational burnout, but let's get back to what we're focusing on today. The five factors that make you burnout proof. Number one is down-regulating. We call that strategic recovery. Number two is physiological capacity. We wrote a book on that called Match Fit. Number three is personal productivity. And that's what I like to call 
setting up a sustainable operating rhythm. Number four is social connectedness. No man, no woman is an island. And that's all around those strong bonds and relationships and finding your tribe. And number five is purpose alignment. Tom, let's start with number one, because I think this is the most important area to look at. Then I reckon two, three, four, you can jostle around and get to five if you have time. Yeah, I'm pleased we've really evolved with this because um, I think what's really, really clear with the 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 individuals we work with. And what's been really clear to me too, with groups I've been working with in the health sector is that the biggest issue is not having the downtime. And so, you know, workload is only, I won't say workload is only, but workload is probably the the biggest thing people talk about when they're not able to balance that with downtime. And we see this, you know, it's no wonder 70, 75% of say, intensive care physicians, nurses, other health professionals that work in ICU, it's no wonder that percentage of them report score very, very high on a burnout continuum because the, the downtime just doesn't come. And we need to look at that from two perspectives. For, firstly, they didn't have downtime when the patient load was exceeded the staffing levels because of the the need for services during the middle of the pandemic. But what's happened is there's been about a 25, 30% exodus of staff from the health system where people were protecting their own well-being and preventing burnout by, by leaving the health system. And so now, while you don't have a mass influx of COVID patients, you have a health system that's actually about 25, 30% under with under capacity from the staffing. So for those left behind, the workload is still outbalancing the recovery. Now, I don't know if that's going to be the same in all other organizations, but the big thing that's missing there is the downtime. And I recently heard you talk about this, Andrew, around your, your power of three. And I think that really resonates with me because people do want to know what can I do? What should I do? Or when should I do it? And I'll get into the power three. But before I do, I just want to pick up and comment on what you said about in nursing and medical environments. I think a lot of that as well is because of that compassion fatigue, because people who go to those vocations, they really do care. And the research shows this, right, in organisations or in roles where people really do care, when they don't detach emotionally, they have a higher risk of burning out if they don't put these factors into their schedule. You add to that the overload we have in the public health system, it's really a perfect storm, isn't it, on top of everything else we've spoken about, that and, and this saddens me that the people that do wonderful work and care and literally save people's lives are burning out because they're not putting their oxygen mask on first. Yeah, and, and they'll, they may be more at risk too for a couple of factors because one of the things I've seen in the work that we've done um, in measuring burnout and measuring well-being is that healthcare professionals score super high on their purpose, super high on what gives them meaning. And work is super prominent in that. But of course, if you then have a degree of moral distress with your work in that you are not able to deliver the care or services or treatments that you feel you should be able to give, whether it's system resources, it's understaffing, um, it's, you know, all those issues around what is quality treatment, quality care, if they're difficult, then you have moral distress. And of course, that moral distress then becomes a trigger towards burnout and other exacerbations of that. So I think there are unique factors in health professionals. 
But I, I think that's also true in other professions where people are fully immersed in their career and their career is center of their life purpose. And should there be disruption to that or should you keep roadblocks in that, then you, you become at high risk of burnout. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the power of three. This is a teaching tool I've only introduced recently because a lot of the strategies that I slash we had developed, they're longer form strategies, you know, put in holidays every quarter, take a good break at least once a year. In Australia, we tend to do that over the summer break around January. But when you're in the thick of it and you just feel there's no respite, you haven't taken holidays and you go, yeah, I've got these academic, nerdy, sporty jock guys telling me all this stuff. I just need to get through today. So the three by three is there's strategies you can do in 30 seconds and there's strategies you can do in three minutes. And and this has been picked up really like amazing in, in the teaching that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And then when you do that, you regulate your autonomic nervous system better. You're not hijacked. You're actually getting out of that that high-end brainwaves we talk about where you think and make decisions and lead and learn. That's the beta brainwaves and we're going a little bit deeper, going alpha. And then people go, huh, I'm being more productive. What's happening? Well, you're down-regulating, which is the psychological detachment and parasympathetic. Why don't you put in some of the 30-minute ones? So let's start with some of the 30-second activities. And Tom, I'll go through these at a high level. For anyone who wants to get deep into the science and the utility on this, you can listen to podcast number 45, long-form episode, where I'm talking to Angela Poon about the power of three. The 30-second activities is warming a towel up and then putting it on your eyes, lying down on a floor somewhere comfortable and just putting the towel on your eyes. That's a great way to downregulate. Humming. Humming has been Mm. shown to stimulate the parasympathetic nerve. Chewing gum. I I know you recently were telling me that you're doing this with one of your your kids, getting them to help regulate their nervous system by chewing gum. The panoramic reframe. When we spend all of our time in a myopic view, generally on screens and in rooms. Dr. Andrew Huberman, neuroscientist, talks about the panoramic reframe. So you try and go panoramic in an office. So I'm sitting in our beautiful podcast studio. The the research shows go to about five to seven metres and you look out wide. That gives your eyes a break. It gives your brain a break and then you can come back and refocus. Again, episode 45, I go through all the science. And one I'll get everyone to do with me, and Tom, you can join me, is the physiological sigh. Now, if you look at dogs, dogs do this before they go to sleep. But humans, we're going to go breathe in through the nostrils. Breathe in again. And just do a couple of those. And you can feel that shift in state. They're really simple activities, Dr. Tom, you can do in 30 seconds. Yeah, that, that that's so fantastic. As we were doing that, sigh, you just reminded me when I first started working in intensive care with the ventilators, had a sigh button and you press the sigh button and they give the, the, the patients this ability to have this big breath sigh. Um, so, you know, we, back then we weren't thinking, oh, we're giving them a little bit of parasympathetic stimulation, but essentially it's what we were doing. Um, the chewing gum one is really fascinating. My younger son, I noticed there during COVID a degree, some degree of anxiety around the homeschooling and everything else that was going on. And I noticed that he started intuitively um, chewing chewing gum and and I noticed it because the first thing as you can imagine they call me the food policeman at home yes immediately picked it up to see it was sugar free um, not that that made it more healthy necessarily but uh, you know and then I, it just tricked on me that uh, Dr. Mark who you've met before uh, you know I do some work with in Germany in Munich in Germany was telling me about research showing that chewing gum increases vagal stimulation so 
we often find ourselves doing a lot of these things. My wife tells me she knows I'm stressed or she, you know, she knows of when I'm start humming or singing or even whistling when I'm around the house. She knows now. And it's funny how we go into those short self sort of preservation and sort of concepts. But I do like the warm towel and the eyes. And it's one of the most pleasurable things you can do. But of course, it completely stops that visual sensation stimulation as well, which is really, really, really good for sticking, you know, switching on parasympathetic activity. The short, practical, immediate tips, mm. and then the three-minute ones, box breathing, where you breathe in for four seconds through your nostrils, hold for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, and hold for four seconds, and repeating that cycle, we know we get our breath rate, or when you get your breath rate down between three and seven beats per minute, we have cardiac coherence, where your heart and your brain, you taught me this, Dr. Tom, are in sync, and then we get that beautiful parasympathetic activation, and everything calms down. When you combine that with imagery, and imagery is not just the ability to see, it's multi-sensory. So can you feel the temperature on your skin, you know, the sun or the wind whistling through your hair? I'd love to feel wind whistling through my hair. Uh, can you <laughs> smell the beautiful aromas? The bringing in that multi-faculty approach with breathwork is great. Again, Podcast 45, I go into more detail. Grounding, this is your baby, where we get a lot of our executive clients to take their shoes off and walk around and they come away from the clinic with us or an online meeting. You guys are idiots. I'm paid millions of dollars and you're telling me to get my beautiful Churchill shoes off that I bought in London for a couple of thousand pounds, blah, blah, blah. Just get your shoes off, big fella, and get back to nature. And then they come back and say, oh, this stuff really works. And just that ability to refocus. And we teach a process on that as well before you go into a key performance moment. Three questions. What does success look like? Who is in the room? And what is context with this group? What do I know about this group? And just that reframe before you go in gets you present. And then after a key meeting or a performance moment, you go, what works? What didn't? What can I improve next time? I've totally adapted that from work we're doing in the military. And then the ability to downregulate. So get ready before you go into a meeting, look after in the review mirror, what worked, what didn't, what can you do better, and then downregulate. All those activities, Dr. Tom, you can do simply in three minutes. Yeah, and the breathing one is is so important. You know, when we breathe in, our heart rate speeds up. When we breathe out, it slows down. And that slowing down is because we increase vagal tone, we increase parasympathetic recovery. And as a matter of fact, if you want to memorize something, uh, try and memorize it as you slow breathe out. You're more likely to remember it. But when you do breathe at that approximately, I mean, the, the magic number is six breaths per minute, you know, you do get that cardiac coherence. And people said to me, oh, so what? When you get that, the heart, lungs and brain are all in ideal synchrony. And that's when you what we call your heart rate variability improves. And when it does, that's an indicator your vagal tone is increased. And you'll remember things better. You know, you, you, your cognitive abilities are massively enhanced so three minutes of 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 slow breathing and i do it i mean i use a device for doing it and a lot of our clients love this device um that measures the brain waves because we can objectively measure what we're doing and get biofeedback um, but you don't need to have a device to do it personally the scientist in me needs to measure something to get it done but you don't need that device but if you train the body and this is where a lot of clients I work with, we train the brain using a neurofeedback device. 
And then over time, you don't need a device. You can just switch on the physiology yourself. But don't, but for people listening, don't underestimate how powerful that three minutes is. If you need to memorize something, if you need to make a really important decision. Or you just want to stop thinking about work. And the trick in that breathing, I think, Andrew, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on this. The trick in that three minutes when you're using it as a sort of psychological detachment, you know, to stop thinking about something particularly work. For me, it's to not think about the work. It's to actually think about the work or think about what I need to be thinking in the three minutes. And by the end of the three minutes, and sometimes it may take five or six, I've actually thought it through to the point of relaxation. I think one of the things that I used to struggle with this myself before you really, really taught me how to do box breathing and to breathe properly was that I've, I've spent so stressed trying to stop thinking while I was breathing, when actually, if you just do your thinking while you're breathing, you, you naturally work it out and get to the point of not needing to think about it. Or you tap into that subconscious thought process, and you've heard me say this multiple times, it's the five Bs when you're on a bike, when you're in a bath, when you're reading a book, you're on a beach or you're in bed, well, the other B, and when you're breathing, you switch off that conscious chatter and then the thoughts start to permeate and come through. I want to pick up as well when you say the scientist in you. I love the dance that we've had for almost two decades. I'm a bit of a free-spirited wild child, I think you called me once, where I'll do something and it feels good. Uh, I've been swimming in cold water and you know, walking around in bare feet and <laughs> doing all this shit for years, and now we can add science. So we've always had that nice dance between. I've always, I think, had science reverse-engineered to prove the points, and you've had science, and then we've added the practice. That's what I love about working together. Hey, another point, when you're with Dr. Mark in Germany, have a chat to him. I'd love to go deeper on heart rate variability, oh. and I'd, I'd like to get a podcast with him on that and we'll talk about what it is and how you train it. I'm conscious we've got four other topics to talk about as well. So let's do a summary. Five tips for active recovery. One is transition time. Transition between key performance moments, but also transition. When you go from work person to home person, don't just walk through the door having hung up on a phone call. Do a three-minute transition or at least a 30-minute so you're present with your family, you're present with your flatmate's partner, whoever it is. You're not in the previous meeting. Number two, daily sunshine. Getting a good dose of vitamin D. Tom, we see this in about 80, 85% of our executive clients. They are vitamin D deficient. You can't work this out because you come from Ireland. We live in Australia. So aim to get at least about 30 minutes of sun exposure on the edges ideally morning to wake everything up. Three, grounding. Bare feet, walking on grass, on sand, on nature, a couple of times a week does wonders. Number four, regular laughter, fun and play. I know two guys who wrote a book together and one of them wanted to do a chapter on play and the other guy thought he was a bit of an idiot. I don't. Who's that? <laughs> we had a robust conversation, didn't we? But then we found out a lot about the science of play. Uh, we looked at Dr. Stuart Brown, who's now in his 90s, who's a leading psychologist in America, who started the Play Institute, which is a research body looking at what play does for longevity and brain function and performance. And Dr. Stuart Brown talks about play deprivation. The outcomes of play deprivation are similar to sleep deprivation. Poor memory, fatigue, reduced creativity, poor decision-making, lack of recovery, hormonal imbalance, and even increased visceral fat and decreased human growth hormone. So we're all big kids. Add fun, laughter, and play. And update, add the three-by-three three format. Look at activities you can do in 30 seconds. Look at activities you can do in three minutes. And just to close out some of the 30-minute activities, 
power naps, moving meditation, massage, and just regular doses, the Latin word, biophilia, regular doses of nature. We could do a whole podcast on downregulating I have. So let's get to number two. I'll get you to lead with this one, Dr. Tom. Physiological capacity. What does that mean? Well, here we're talking about actually optimizing your physiology. And I think we can often pay less attention to our physiology. We have natural decrements that occur as we age. I mean, unfortunately, those decrements start happening at a young age, but they can really get accelerated. You you spoke about one earlier, vitamin D. Yeah, I've, I've got scientific friends who said to me, oh, God, I'm tired of people talking about vitamin D. It's overemphasized, et cetera, et cetera. But unbelievably, in this country, about two-thirds of the population, vitamin D levels have lowered than what we would consider optimal from a human performance. They, the rates are probably only about 20% that are low enough to, for your general practitioner to get concerned about your, your, your bone health. But we do know that when vitamin D is low for men in particular, your testosterone levels are at risk of being low. We do know that when your vitamin D is low, you're at higher risk of feeling mood disturbance and depression symptoms. And yeah, and it makes a lot of sense because we know how much better we feel when we get more sun exposure. The risk here in Australia, of course, is that sun exposure can increase your risk of other things, particularly skin cancers. And there was a very interesting study from Europe recently that showed that uh, in individuals who had suboptimal vitamin D levels, if you supplemented the vitamin D rather than used the sunshine to extremes, you had lower cancer risk. So we do have to f- that tip into a balance between. We also know that some individuals, as we get older, have less ability to synthesize vitamin D. So vitamin D is only one, but it's involved in 500 chemical reactions in the body. And optimizing it is one of the easiest things and cheapest things for us to do. So that's what we mean by physiological capacity. Another really good example here is heart rate. And we know that people who have lower heart rates live longer. But we also know that people who have lower heart rates have high vagal tone or parasympathetic activity. And we know they have greater stress resilience. So in the concept of, of optimizing your physiology, training your cardiorespiratory system, increasing your VO2 max, which is a measurement of cardiorespiratory fitness, also increases your vagal tone or your parasympathetic recovery modulation increases your stress resilience. And I'm talking about psychological stress resilience as well as physical stress resilience. So we do know that there are these areas that are fundamental to actually our capacity as individuals to peak perform in anything that we're doing in our life, but also create resilience to disease. And it's very important in the concept of what we're talking about here, boost our energy levels, reduce lethargy, boost our mood, and make us less risk of having mood disturbance. In his latest book on longevity, Dr. Peter Atia talks about chasing two factors. Number one, VO2 max, the maximum amount of oxygen per milliliter per kilogram per minute. And the second one is chase strength or increase your lean body mass. I had an interesting phone conversation this morning after dropping the kids at daycare, got a coffee, Rang a mate I haven't spoken to him for a while. You know this guy. Uh, he's in our cycling group and he's doing lots of resistance training. And we were talking, reflecting that we've really gone from doing those long, slow three or four hour Sunday rides and doing short, sharp bursts and doing more resistance training. That's a big thing that I've adapted the last five, six years. And the genesis of this was doing a lot of work on myself when I wasn't in good shape and 
had gone through a marriage breakdown, but also looking at the research that you've got to chase VO2 max, high intensity, regular interval training, add some resistance training to build muscle. And if I can throw a third thing in there around physiological capacity, I'd also get people to move and bend and stretch a little bit because you don't want to get to a stage in life where you cross your legs and your jaw snaps open. Yeah, you use it or you lose it is a saying that I frequently talk to clients about. And also for people to have this reality that if you're 50 years of age and you're unable to do a lot of things physically, if your capacity has shrunk, um, don't think when you're 75, you're suddenly going to be doing those things. Because if you don't develop that capacity or maintain that capacity, the only caveat I put into that is that we do know from the science that if you've been a well-trained athlete, very fit when you're younger, you don't fully lose that. So if you're resurrected again in your 30s or 40s or 50s, you bring back some of that benefit from being younger, which is a great argument for why kids should be have school playtime, why they should be involved in sport. But we also know that if you are very fit when you're younger and you maintain that across your lifetime, you have massive additional benefits and your physiological capacity will always be higher than somebody who never did it and it'll still be higher than somebody who resurrected as much as they could later in life so in other words it's never too late and and what you might hear me often saying to clients is you know when they're trying to work out where to start is what did you really enjoy doing when you were a teenager or in your early 20s what sports did you do now sometimes the musculoskeletal body at 50 won't allow you to do them but at least that's your starting point because that's where you're going to get your fun you spoke about earlier. That's where you can resurrect some of that youthful joyness again. But it's also perhaps the one thing that you're more likely to keep doing because not everybody wants to go to the gym. Not everybody wants to ride a bike. Not everybody wants to go or can go running. Yeah, it's finding a balance, but looking at those key areas, something to get your heart rate up, high intensity, short, sharp yep. bursts, something to build muscle, you need resistance, and then ideally something that stretches you out. Resting heart rate's an interesting one, and we need to do another podcast on this another day. That is a metric that we get all of our clients to use. And when you see your heart rate is up about 10% from normal, so my resting heart rate is 44 or 45 beats a minute. I know that's low, You've told me one would be genetics, two is because I flogged myself as a middle distance runner in my 20s. So I, I trained that myocardial tissue, that heart tissue. So when you grow more muscle mass in the heart, it needs to beat less because it's stronger. I, I do find that's an advantage, knowing my heart rate. And if I'm coming into a really busy block, recently, like last semester, I saw it had crept up to 51, 52, 53. I'll do two things, step back, step up, and look at what have I been doing recently that's overloading the system. And two is I'll double down on the down regulation activities and stop doing the high intensity activity and the heavy weight sessions and just chill for a day or two. So it's a really good metric, isn't it? Our KPI. Uh, totally. I think, you know, I say heart rate doesn't lie and you can chase it. What's really important in that is knowing your own metric. And yes, we can plot your resting heart rate, which is generally in studies done after three minutes of non-activity rest that measure your heart rate. And we can plot that. We, we know that people who score in the lowest heart rate um, compared to those scoring the highest heart rate have very different trajectories. As a matter of fact, patients coming into emergency, you can add in heart rate into your prediction model. So it's a really important it's a really important variable. I think what, what's really important though is to remember that when heart rate goes up and particularly goes really up, people generally tend to get anxiety 
Yeah. And so if we think about a lot of the things we do in our society, you know, that, that increase heart rate, you know, that, that constant stimulation from electronics, too much caffeine, etc., then these things increase your heart rate. And then we might wonder why we're starting to feel edgy or anxious. There's a relationship there. Uh, can I tell you a little story on that? Um, I, I don't know if listeners or yourself or your own kids have got into this whole crime Oh, I took Archie to LA with me earlier this year on a work trip, just aligned with everything. And he went to five freaking shops over there yeah, to find yeah. Prime because yeah. it wasn't out yet. And on the plane on the way back, I said, mate, what was, your, what was your highlight of the trip? Now, we went and saw an LA Lakers basketball game. Yeah, <laughs> We went to the Griffith Observatory and we ran up to the Hollywood sign. We went to this beautiful restaurant, which was in the old part of Koreatown. We went to Venice Beach. We ran a 5K run along Venice Beach. We went to Universal Studios. I'm expecting all that. You know what he said the highlight of his freaking trip was? Oh, Dad, my mates, I can't wait to tell them that I've had Prime. I know. I've had the same experience here. As a matter of fact, we were, we were away on a trip uh, earlier this year, and the whole trip was destroyed with him on, on Google working out where Prime was stuck. But anyway, it's another conversation. But the, the, the big deal for the kids, of course, is to get their hands on the caffeinated prime, which is, you know, apparently something like over twice the amount of caffeine that's in a Red Bull. And uh, somehow he got he, he got this can of prime and he was desperate to taste it. And about three, four weeks ago, he had swimming training on a Saturday morning and he had a soccer game an hour later. And I said, well, is there a time you're going to taste this prime? It's, you know, let's have 200 mils of this. And, and, you know, this is the one time to do it in between. Bad dad, I know. Uh, you're probably thinking here, I can't believe you let him do it. What I didn't realize was that he drank the whole can of it uh, all across the game. And he, I never saw him run so hard up and down the pitch, up and down the pitch, up and down. As a matter of fact, he got, he got player of the week that week. But then an hour after the game, he had the most intense feeling of anxiety, doom and gloom, said he couldn't feel his legs, was starting to breathe fast. And I immediately went, oh, you idiot, I can't believe I let him drink that. And that's a great example of your heart rate going up and then the psychological symptoms you get from it. Now, in that case, you know, you, if that ever happens to your kids, you know, you get them to drink water, hydrate it, dilute it out of the system, out into the open air, deep breathe it down. And if it gets worse, go to an emergency department. Because there have been a lot of emergency admissions from people over caffeinating. And Prime is one of the drinks that's, that's, that's been reported. The point I'm making is that when your heart rate's up, your anxiety levels will go up. So bringing your heart rate down will naturally bring your anxiety down. As a matter of fact, some of the studies I do uh, with my cardiology colleagues is using drugs like beta blockers at low dose to bring heart rate down, to bring anxiety down during life stressors. And we've, we've done studies on this in, in severe acute life stress where you know, telling somebody to breathe it out is not going to help them get through this period or prevent them having a heart attack. But what we've seen in our studies that it brings the anxiety symptoms right down as well. So if you want to regulate anxiety or you want to increase your mood, bring your heart rate down. And earlier you talked about three seconds, three minutes or 30 minutes, all of those activities bring your heart rate down. The point I want to make, does your wife, Nat, know about this story? She does. She was with us afterwards and um, couldn't believe that I had let him drink it. 
But unbeknown to me, he was sipping it across the game. That's my excuse. All right, let's save this podcast. Give me the five tips for physiological capacity. I mean, the first one is to try and get your biological age to be five years younger than your chronological age. On that point, the Live Life score, which has taken up a lot of time in our life the last couple of months as well. So with Strive Stronger, we now have a Live Life score scientifically backed. It takes three to five minutes. It's got wearable tech integration for those with advanced wearable tech. It gives two scores, Dr. Tom. It gives you biological age in years, and it also gives a mental fitness gauge. So again, any companies who want to find out more about this, yell out, because that's the score we've got now that is scalable. I'm really proud of what we've developed with that score. Yeah, and I think if you are reducing your biological age five years, and it's possible to reduce it even 10 years younger than your chronological age, you will have increased your physiological capacity, you will have increased your stress resilience, you will have improved your mood, all the things that come from benefits from that. To get there, high intensity interval training. Um, if you speak to a lot of individuals who are in their 90s and you actually unpack what they do a lot will talk about going anaerobic every day in other words get your heart rate up because the way you train it to come down is get it up and we now know our national guidelines recommend doing high intensity training as part of your regular training program andrew you and i we recommend about two twice a week usually with a high intensity and of course be conditioned enough to be able to do it before you start really getting the heart rate up Safeguard your sleep, protect your sleep, okay? make it a priority and, and go for quality restorative sleep. Natural healthy foods, um, something we didn't talk about up to now, but actually really, really important because we know that uh, processed foods take on average about seven years off, years off people's lives. People who regularly eat processed foods are taking on average seven years off your life. And that's because of the decrements to your physiological capacity I think most of that is due to inflammation and the, how the body responds to abnormal or what are not really foods. And the fifth one, really importantly, is to get a really good dose of nature. Go green. We, we Andrew, you and I did a tremendous body of work on this, looking at the physiological, psychological effects that you get from exposure to nature. This is this is not so pseudoscience. Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life Score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. 
In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialise in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energised and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon. So watch this space. Yeah, that was when I stepped out of KPMG. Shout out to Wayne Larden, who runs some of the biggest fun runs and group participation events now in Asia Pacific with his business. And, and Lardy said, oh, can you guys do a bit of research? Because they were doing some work with Sydney City Council. That was a great bit of research and work we did, wasn't it? Looking at mm-hmm. green spaces and also that now they call blue spaces with oceans and creeks yeah. as well. Although some creeks I've seen over the years aren't really blue, but it's it's the natural connectivity that just helps us get in sync and downregulate. What I really enjoy about the evolution, Tom, of our conversations and IP and content, it's not just, oh, downregulate, improve physiological capacity. A lot of these factors really weave in together and you can double dip and that's how you optimize yeah. time. What a great segue into optimizing time. Number three the ways to inoculate yourself against burning out is personal productivity. We've done multiple podcasts. I regularly speak, coach, influence on this. So let me give you the statistics to start with, Dr. Tom. It's awful. It takes 23 minutes and 15 seconds to refocus attention. If you're listening to this and you have pop-up alerts on your mobile phone, on your laptop, on your PC, you are doing your brain you are doing your organization a disservice fact. Oh, but I need to say, no, no, no. That's part of that cultural or part of that organization burnout. If you're there waiting, someone I'm working with at the moment, it's a global consulting firm. They said to me, they did a survey recently when, when one of the heads of sent an email and they looked at over 50% of those emails were answered within the first 15 seconds. And this was to hundreds of people. So I'm thinking, my God, that productivity is shocking because when you're doing deep work, Cal Newport talks about, you're using your brain, your experience, you're actually thinking about what you're meant to do, you get so much more done. In fact, the research shows when you align this with your chronobiology, meaning deep work without distraction aligned to your natural energy levels, you'll get up to 30% more work done. The average person, Tom, is spending two and a half hours per day accessing unrelated digital content. No wonder you're busy. You're busy looking at crap. 40% of knowledge workers have less than 30 minutes of focus time or deep work every single day. 70% of emails are opened within six seconds of receipt. And during COVID, and this has increased or continued to increase on the back of it, there was a 70% uptake in social media and people checking social constantly. So if I summarize, the way we are working just isn't working. I'm so pleased that we're, we're giving this attention because I think you, we can be incredibly inefficient in a day. I know I have days where I spend all day doing what I should be getting to do what I should be doing all day. You know, sometimes you're just so inefficient. And then the result of that is I'm working late into the evening. And so one of the things I'm really, really careful about now is making sure that I'm really got blocks of time and I'm really going to just get the work done because I've come to realize that I prefer to have the free time later rather than sort of actively delay or procrastinate. You've changed a lot on this since we started working together because one of the 
big myths I think is hours worked equals productivity. Mm. <clears throat> hours work doesn't equal productivity. I think the environment you came from before we started working together, and correct me if you feel this is total bullshit that I'm making up, but I think in that environment you've come from, you are available. You're also more junior when I met you 20 years ago as well, but you've seen with the IP that we teach and you've seen the executives when they come back three or four months later and they have been performed and they just swear by the productivity tools we use, like the better week, like yeah. doing a daily warm-up, yeah. like working a line to your circadian clock, like you're doing deep work, like having an EA or support team that know your body clock as well, your biorhythm. You've just seen that. So I think this has become part of the way you work now. So as a setup, rather than me talking about this, because I've been living, breathing this for 10, 15 years, what's your guidance, Tom, to people who are sitting there going, yeah, God, guys, you're banging on. I get the down regulation stuff. Yeah, I get to be five years younger and physiological capacity, but you've got no freaking idea how hard it is in the environment I'm in. I have no capacity to change this or I don't feel like I can change. What would you say to someone like that? I mean, I understand where they're coming from, but I would ask them immediately, have you stopped and assessed? Have you done a self-assessment? Have you actually spent some time looking at your diary? Have you actually diarized what you're really doing versus what you think you're doing? Have you got somebody to look externally at it? And it's the same model we use in in, in health and, and, and medicine, you know, assess, plan, implement, evaluate. So I would always say, if, if you don't really know what you're doing, then you're probably not in a position to make any change. And I think people develop a concept of what they think they're doing versus what they are doing. So with that individual, I would really challenge to stop and to assess and use some objective ways and external people to work out. I, I do it all the time, Andrew. I use you all the time. You know, I've changed roles over, over the years and sometimes the, the wheels are spinning. And a lot of that is me spinning the wheels rather than stopping and putting in a better week, rather than stopping and planning ahead. I think work is like sleep. You'll rarely have a good night's sleep by accident. I think you'll rarely have a productive day by accident. I think you'll be reactive rather than proactive. And so I've used a lot of your tools on that in actually how I structure my week, how I structure my day, when I do my emails, when I don't, quarantining time, planning in those activities we talked about earlier across the day and also planning transition out of work to not work time. Let's double click on one or two of those in a little bit more detail. So can you pull one or two of those different areas that you do differently now and explain to our listeners you know, why you've done that or maybe I just told you to, but what have you noticed different? One of the simplest things I do is when I'm doing concentrated work, I just don't have my emails on. There's no pop-ups. Um, I don't have I don't have them on. When I'm not planning to do emails, I don't have them on because somebody else's crisis will become my problem in the middle of what I, me trying to be productive. Now, I think there's a risk in some jobs that you become unavailable. So I think you know people have to look at that in the context of what they do. But for me and what I do, there are periods of time where my emails are off, my mobile is off. And that's such a simple strategy. And those two or three hours where I'm doing that deep work, I'll get a full day's work done. And also for me, I am phenomenally productive in the morning. I am completely unproductive in the evening. 
So for me, I will look in the afternoon to do most of my transactional work. I'll do my high concentration thinking work in the morning. And I think I've shared with you before, Andrew, when I was writing my PhD thesis, I would start at five in the morning and I would finish about eight and I would have a day's work done. And then I'd go ride my bike for four or five hours. And everybody was saying to me, you know, do you have so much time on your bike? Shouldn't you be doing your thesis? And I'm like, I've done a day's work. Yep. He's getting he's getting psychological detachment and coming up with models and making sense of everything he's just done the work on. The, the am, science is there. Yeah, but I'm also getting pleasure from the day. Whereas if I did the bike at five to nine o'clock, I'd probably muck around till 11 and then I'd procrastinate till midday and then I would be in my own productive part of the day. So I think it's about, they're the biggest changes for me. One, recognizing diary management. You know, if you've got control of your diary, keep control and i've learned that recently too. keep as much control as you can of your diary pre-planned blank time and and teach people your ways of working and the second thing is think about when you're working good summary let's look at the five key tips to help people ramp up their personal productivity number one wake up your circadian clock this is the first 30 to 60 minutes of every single day we tell people to get some sunlight exposure ideally 10 minutes if it's really bright sunny day if the sun is up or if it's an overcast day get about 30 minutes so i've adapted this from neuropsychologist dr andrew huberman as well push caffeine back 90 minutes don't have caffeine first thing actually move the body so that helps you wake up your circadian clock the second factor is plan your day tom mentioned this at the start of a day just have a really clear outline what does success look like today i've adapted this from sport it's called a daily warm-up you don't go and play any sport Without a warm-up, you shouldn't play any day without a daily plan. 10 or 15 minutes to really focus on the day ahead. Number three, align this to your energy personality. I've done a podcast on this as well, where I get into it in detail, but we look at four key energy personalities. The gazelle, like Tom and I, we wake up at 5, 5.30. We'll often be talking to each other in the fives of the morning because you're one of the only people I know apart from Mark O'Neill, g'day Buckets, who's also awake at that time of day. Uh, but gazelles do their best work first thing of the morning. We tend to follow off a cliff of an afternoon. The second energy personality, they think gazelles suck. They're called bears. Bears have their highest concentration curve or their productivity peak late afternoon into early evening as well. Now, some of you listening to this will go, well, I'm a love child or I'm a blend between the gazelle and the bear because I'm good of a morning. I crash after lunch and then I have a second wind. That's two thirds of people. And that is a tiger. You have two concentration curve peaks, late morning and sort of mid-afternoon into the early evening. And we've added the dolphin. The dolphins are the insomniacs who don't sleep, and we've got some tips for them as well. Number four is batch your tasks for efficiency. Now, this has made a huge difference in the work that I'm doing, Tom. I'll try and do most of my mental skills sessions with athletes together in a couple of chunks. A Friday morning, I'll go and do all my executive coaching because what I used to do is I'd do a coaching session Monday morning at 9 a.m., then I'd do all teamwork, and then I might jump into a mental skills. You get to the end of the day and your brain has been toggling and you're just totally wrecked. There's a lot of research around this to show that that batching really helps you with efficiency. And we also know when you have a big meeting coming up, you're 22% latest research shows you're 22% less efficient because you're thinking in an hour, gosh, I've got to get the slides ready. Gosh, I've got to make sure I've got the story or the narrative on this group. Gosh, gosh, gosh. So really trying to plan the day where your batch task makes a big difference. Number five, we've spoken about a few times, a better week. 
I've been teaching this for years. We've got a podcast on that as well, where Ange and I talk about it in detail. But in a high level, what you're doing with your better week is before you dive into work activities, you put in a few activities that energize you. Generally, that's around physical activity or outside engagement. You put a few activities that connect you. So that would be with loved ones, with families, with others. And you put a few activities that inspire or educate you, a few activities that are connected to your purpose, or it may be around learning. And that's putting yourself first before burning all your energy on work. So they're the tips around boosting productivity. Let's get to the fourth part today, which is social connectedness, or the fourth tip, no man, no woman is an island. Island. Tom, we've done a lot of work around connectedness and the opposite of this is loneliness. Yeah, and we know, you know, from a science perspective, we we absolutely know from the studies that people who report low social connection, they also report more vulnerability to anxiety, depression, and they're more likely to exhibit antisocial behavior. I, I think from the perspective of connections and social connect connections in the context of burnout and in the context of work i think where we start to see the undermining here and of uh, people's well-being from a social connection is when they don't have trust and we know that trust can often be at the heart of cynicism if people don't trust what you're saying if they don't trust that what you're saying is not self-serving or if they look at everything from a cynical perspective that's really contagious among groups of people but then there's not going to be trust there and when there's not trust there's not going to be true social connectedness and so often we forget that when we're working with other human beings there's the potential to have connections beyond transactional with those human beings. I mean, I, I love when I go into work and sort of bounce around and say hello to people. I, I love that. I, I really like the people I work with, but I have worked in environments where I didn't like the people I worked with and I didn't trust them and I was cynical about everything. And that would have put me at very high risk of burnout had I stayed there. So I think it's really important to take a step back and wonder, but also wonder why you know, Johnny or Jimmy or Joan is not connecting with people. And, you know, what what is their perspective? And don't just presume they're an introvert. Perhaps they don't, they're not connecting because underneath that, they're, they don't understand what's going on or they don't have trust or they're, they're feeling like they can't connect with people around. And it's so protective. And a lot of the work we've done over the last two or three years, Andrew, has been about getting organizations and teams to connect and to even just talk and express and have an open dialogue and sometimes express that thing called vulnerability, which then suddenly, as soon as one person shows it, everybody feels permission to do it. Two key points I'd like to pick up on that. If you are in a low trust, which has really poor psychological safety, and if it is a toxic environment, it doesn't matter how much you downregulate. It doesn't matter what your biological age is and your physiological capacity. It doesn't matter how productive you are. You are not going to flourish and you are going to feel like you're really challenged. So it's so important when you look at all these factors together. But for anyone listening who is in an environment like that, I feel for you. I, I have been there when I sold a previous business and went from one boss to another who was just a, an A-grade a-hole. 
And I got swept up by it, and you were with me, right, along the, the journey. And you talk about that social contagion theory. This, this guy would show up and he'd yell at everyone. And I just noticed everyone in the team, not just ours, was on the edge of their chair. And, and in this day and age, I'm just still bewildered how some of these people get away with this behavior. Thank goodness it's starting to be picked up. But that would impact my mood and our mood. So just be really conscious. If you're in an environment that is like that, Try and do something to either get into another team. If you do have someone who's open, just at least sit down and talk to them about it. Let them know how you feel. And if they are just totally immune to it or they're a, a corporate psychopath, get out. Yeah, life's too short. Yeah. I, I, the first step, once again, is, you know, we go back to assess, plan, implement, evaluate. Just assess it for what it is. See it for what it is. Recognize it. Um, I think it's it's easy to get wrapped up in the irritability and cynicism and then it becomes so contagious and suddenly you own it when actually it's somebody let other people own that just assess it recognize what it is and then then seek advice and help on what's the best way to manage it what's the best way to protect yourself and insulate yourself from getting sucked in and becoming burned out i i think you know some workplaces and some organizations can be just just have such a toxic culture and if they just stopped, did a self-assessment, had some open dialogue, where where became honest with each other, you'd probably a lot of that lack of trust would dissipate because often it's I don't understand you, I don't understand your pressures, I don't understand what your what your needs are, you don't understand mine, you don't understand my pressures. You have that open dialogue, and suddenly there's an understanding, and then you can generate some trust. And that can dissipate a lot of that cynicism. Do you remember how you felt when we were in that environment? And and I look back at that time, I was so angry and so caught up and consumed. I now look at it as a gift. So that guy's incompetence was a gift because I can go into an environment and I can go, oh, this is what's happening. Or here's what you do with a narcissistic leader. And they go, how do you know this? Like, because I've experienced it and I got got out of it, worked out of it. It's actually his incompetence was a gift. So thank you for that. But at the time you get absorbed by it and that social contagion theory, how you show up as a leader is how they show up. Same as with your kids or your partner. You go home, you're tired, distracted, cranky, and then suddenly, why is this house not listening? Well, it's because you showed up like that. So when I ask you to go back to that environment, how did you feel in that environment? Well, you start, you, I mean, first of all, it triggers emotions in you and and you end up saying and doing things you normally wouldn't. And you and often what I found myself is I end up exacerbating or exaggerating, you know, the, the scenario. Little things become big things and um, and they really, you know, you're lying in bed thinking about things, stewing on them and, and stuff. So I think I recognize that, but I also was in a position where I could change and it didn't have a lot of impact on me to be able to literally just change careers or change. In my case, it was change, change an organization. But that's not easy for a lot of people. And if I go back to your scenario, I wasn't affected by that person in when I was in that environment. That person didn't interact with me, so I wasn't affected. But I knew it all through your debriefs with me. Yeah. So at least you had somewhere you could debrief with somebody who would understand, which is incredibly important. So so we had a connection, a social connection, if we talk. So yeah, we were able to debrief. But that's a phenomenally important thing to remember in that scenario. My wife wasn't affected by the workplace I was in. Yeah. So 
she's it's not her problem so she's not going to understand it but she can be a good sounding board but don't expect her to understand it if she's not feeling it yeah and therefore when you go to colleagues and you're really wound up over something or you there's an injustice because injustice and lack of trust are absolutely erode anybody's um uh, well-being and there's an injustice you don't trust a person you feel like you're being un treated unjust unless that individual you're talking to about is affected by it they're they're not going to feel what you're feeling yeah so just be aware of that yeah and they may be looking at you going ah oh, tom you need to get your act together you know man up blah 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 and i had people who gave me those responses yeah because they didn't feel any emotion about it where i got support in those scenarios was talking to people like you is talking to people who knew had that experience who could associate with that experience who could say okay i can see you're feeling this i can see you're expressing this have you thought about doing this or that objectivity is really important because you can sit around with people in an environment like that whip yeah. yourselves into a frenzy that's right and it makes it even worse the second point I wanted to pick up on, you said this to me a few days ago. We were just, I was doing a walk and talk with you. You were walking and talking, we're on the phone. And you said, I really want to convey in this podcast that having a strong relationship with your significant other is a huge buffer or barrier to burnout. Do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I do. Because I think one of the things I've become really conscious, Andrew, I, I just turned 53. So, you know, you, you you often stop and reflect, you know, and you think one thing I notice around me is that some of my peers won't say friends because they might think they know what I'm talking about. But some of the people around me I've recognized don't have relationships I thought they had. You know, I've had some people divulge things to me and I recognize that their relationships are not what the external person thinks. And I think one of the things that gets you through really, really hard times, certainly been the case in my life, is really solid relationships, you know, particularly with your partner or close members of your family. They, they're the things that really buffer you, you know, and it's a emotional comfort, physical comfort. It's knowing you've got somebody to talk to. And so I just think people should be really aware, you know, when your partner comes in and they really need to offload, and the last thing you want to hear is that story again. It's actually the most important thing you're doing in that relationship. And I actually think it's a solid relationship. You will listen, you'll understand, you'll let the person debrief, and then hopefully that person feels better. But in poor, close relationships, the person's just thinking about themselves. Oh, I don't really want to hear all this again. Oh, God, here we, you know, this thinking. And I've come to recognize that actually some of the people who are most stressed or would probably score higher on this burnout um, uh, index that we've created are people that don't have great personal relationships. They haven't got that buffer. Another little tip on that, and I, I credit Tony, my partner, we'll have a chat about every week, every couple of weeks, where you can have that discussion, you know, what is maybe not working or what's on your mind on the relationship, on the family, just on stuff coming up. Because if you don't, build that time in and you do it at work you know it's a problem solving session but if you don't build that in in a personal relationship what happens is you go out for dinner and you're at a romantic restaurant you're all doled up and then ah, oh, and you start having that conversation then oh, she comes. it's a real mood killer and and uh someone i know well has had that feedback so <laughs> <laughs> ha having that time allocated time 
is really important. It's something that I'm trying to build in to my personal relationships is to you know, have time where you just go out and have fun and connect and you know, be playful, but then have some time where you do talk about some of the challenges. I think that's a really good tip. Yeah, and I'm not claiming to be the world's best husband here, I, but one of the things that I do know that we do a lot because we're not always in the same space at the same time. You know, as you said earlier, you're off with kids' sport, you're doing your own sport, you've got work, you've got, you've got to the gym, you've got life going on. But actually having a daily debrief, and for us often it's on the phone driving home from work, you know, just having that daily debrief is incredibly important. But you need to be able to trust the person you're doing it with, but also recognize that person is listening, that person is interested. And I think close relationships become a real buffer. And, and I, you know, there's science to that. There, there's research behind that. It is not just me saying that, that there is a science. There's a reason why we value connection. There's a reason why social connection is so important here. Give me the five tips for social connectedness, the five top tips to focus on. First of all, strengthen your relationships, Andrew. Work at those. Second of all, find your tribe. Third, and you mentioned this earlier, look at the physical activity double dip. Look at ways that you can double dip here and connect with people. Keep your eyes up and down-regulate before you connect. Talk to me about number four, keep your eyes up. It's a new one we've added. So it's keeping your eyes up, like literally, you're getting off your mobile phone, but keeping your eyes up, you mean look broader, look out what's around? Yeah, it's become one of my favorite sayings. You keep hearing me saying it at the moment. I think sometimes we just have our, we're looking at our feet and we're busy and we're doing and we're, and we're not, we're not looking up at the horizon and we're not even looking up at the sky and we're not, we're not noticing the people around us. We're not noticing the environment around us. So it's really, you know, just, just stop, look up. You talked about earlier about having a panoramic view, but also do that in relation to the people around you. There's a potential to connect with humans in our lives for most of us every single day. But I think we lose those opportunities. Mm, I like that. The fifth area we look at to help inoculate people against burning out is personal purpose. Do you want to run with this? Do you want to start? How do you want to approach personal purpose? I've learned so much around personal purpose from you, Andrew. I'm going to flip this back to you. Well, I flipped this as well. Remember, this was number one when we first yeah, did yeah. this during COVID. And I found, especially now back doing a live events, when you say to people, all right, number one, look at a clearly articulated purpose. Now, there's some real research behind this. So yeah. we know people with a clearly articulated purpose, one, you will live longer. Two, people with a clearly articulated purpose, you will be more resilient. You bounce back from adversity because you've got a bigger picture view and you have context. Three, people with a clearly articulated purpose will earn more money. So if you want to live longer, bounce back faster and earn more money, why would you not clearly articulate your purpose? Absolutely. And recognize from a well-being perspective that it's a really important part of our general well-being purpose. But we mentioned earlier in this podcast that if you're if you know your purpose, yes, you do earn more money, yes, you do bounce back quicker, yes, you do live longer. Research is really clear on that, particularly in older populations. But also it can be a risk factor for burnout because if there's barriers to your burn to your purpose, if there's barriers to things that give you the most meaning, and we talked earlier about health professionals being at risk of burnout for that reason, moral distress, you know, the conflict of that with 
their their purpose and and things that they you know biggest meaning in their lives. So I think we just got to be conscious of that um, that there are risks too with but you got to know your purpose and you've got to be in tune which is as a starting point and why i've changed my personal experience n equals one and then having done this now with multiple people to clearly articulate a purpose a minimum takes three or four months with coaching and when i was at kpmg earning more money than i thought i'd ever earn and it was towards the end i, I sold my business to kpmg and it was a three-year agreement and it was Starting into the third year, I just made a decision that I don't want to stay here. Still do a lot of work with KPMG, got some friends there, love some of the consulting work I'm doing there. But I wanted to go back and do my own thing and I wanted to get back into sport and that wasn't going to happen in a global consulting firm. So I started some coaching with a guy named Richard Burton. Mm. his podcast on purpose it's actually our most downloaded episode ever it has just gone off so if you really want to find more about purpose go listen to that episode with richard but after i work with richard and he makes the joke that i wanted to work out purpose on tuesday he, i thought i'd read their documents on monday tuesday i'd sit down i'd have a clearly articulated purpose he said Maisie, you've been in your body for your yeah. 43, 44 years, I think, at that stage. You're not going to work this out, mate, in a couple of weeks. And it did take a few months. But to work out your purpose, Tom, I've added to this. I think you need three key factors. One is you need time. You need time to read, to watch, to listen, whatever your learning style is, on content about that. And you need time to reflect. The second part you need is energy. So if you're listening to this and you have no time at the moment, if you're tired and fatigued physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, all types of energy, and the third factor you need is attentive focus. So we could call that T, time, energy, and attention. If you don't have that at the moment, don't don't weigh yourself down and try and clearly articulate your purpose. Now, I'm not saying bin it. What I'm saying is just go... Huh, I resonate with Andrew. And, and and when I first changed this methodology, it was with Meetings Events Association, big keynote in the Gold Coast earlier this year. And I could just see people in the audience go, oh, because I've heard Simon Sinek say it starts with why. I've heard that having a sense of purpose also creates additional neurons and connections within our brain. Scientists call this cognitive reserve. So we can bang on about why it's awesome to articulate a purpose. And I've got mine and I did it. But then I realize you just piss people off if you say you've got to articulate a purpose. So if you're not in the right time and space right now, don't have time, energy or attention, I needed a supplement and supplement by putting in some joy, some meaning and some fun with other activities. And then when you have more capacity down the track, you can go deeper on purpose. I've changed the way I'm teaching that, Tom. Yeah, and I I really resonate with that because I think if if you're trying to go deep in the middle of a crisis, it can be really difficult. A good analogy for that, you know, if a a patient turns up to emergency bleeding, you know, you, you will your initial assessment and early intervention is to stop the bleeding. It's not the time to ask them all the details of the last 10 years of their life. Yeah, your immediate priority is to stop the bleeding. And often when people get to this stage of really needing to engage with purpose or really needing to sit down and work this out and make some big decisions, you can't do that in the middle of a crisis. You're going to make a very different decision but we use this we use this analogy in emergency response of halt you know don't make a critical decision halt when you're hungry angry late 
tired, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, late, or tired. You're not going to make the same decision when you're not hungry, when you're emotionally not angry, when you're not rushing, and you're not fatigued. It's going to be completely different decisions because your cognitive abilities are different, but your perspective on the world is different. So I fully agree. I think you do need to get stop the bleeding. And if the bleeding is I'm not sleeping, and I'm wound up or the relationship's not going well, or I'm in conflict with my manager, or et cetera, then that's not the time to sit down and do your purpose statement. You've got to get out of that and address that and then sit down and ask yourself those things. And I remember you doing this very, very clearly. You know, and the question you would ask is, you know, beyond earning money, why am I here? Or why am I doing this? And I remember you turning down a very lucrative contact back in that period where it would have been for money, but it was not going to align with giving you your purpose. And I don't know if you want to share that or not, but I clearly remember that sitting there and I'm looking at him going, is he mad? Yeah. And at the time, that meant you were probably on the breadline for a little while, but look where what it's done for you. You know, there's often those crossroads where you need to make those tough decisions, but you'll never make that in the middle of a crisis. Mm, since you've taken me back, I didn't realise you were going to bring this up. I won't mention the exact company, but let's say it may have been one of the other big four consulting firms, and I just left one and uh, another firm. I knew a few people there made an offer, and it was part in Australia, part global. My ego was telling me, yeah, that's great. But when I tapped into my purpose, and, and my purpose now, and I've just recently spent some time with Richard again, he says purpose is like a jacket. You put it on, trial it, you might get some alterations. So I've just done some alterations. So my shortened purpose is waking people up to reach their full potential. When I work with a CEO or an aspiring CEO or chairman or board member, when I work with an athlete who wants to win a world championship title or I work with a sporting team who's chasing a big trophy, if I feel like I'm waking people up, so that's the jolt to get them mm -hmm. to look at new pathways, new habits, new patterns, and then to reach their full potential, I'm totally living. So going back when I was offered that role, I just ran it by my purpose back then, which was a bit longer, but it was still about waking people up. And it was a hell no. It was yeah. offered a lot more money than I'd been paid at KPMG. But I thought in three months' time, I'm going to be miserable because while I've changed the environment, changed the car park, change the people I'm working with. I haven't changed the nature of the work and I didn't feel like I was totally on purpose. And if I step out a little bit and I'll come back, a purpose needs to, to have three factors. Number one, it needs to be bigger than you. Number two, it needs to be future focused. And number three, it needs to excite the living daylights out of you. So that other offer for me didn't excite the living daylights out of mm. me. Yeah, and I didn't feel it was bigger. So I said no. And then when COVID hit and we lost 90% of revenue, I thought, I'm a freaking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, now I use my purpose to make decisions with job offers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I use purpose to help me bounce back. And I feel totally on message with the majority of what I do. The majority. There's still parts of my job, Tom, that I think, yeah, I, I don't want to be doing this all the time. But the majority of my job, I do feel totally aligned. And it is like a compass when you work out. So while we said, if it's not the right time now to double down on your purpose, I would reach out through whatever headphones you're on and try and get your ears and your attention at some stage. Please do the work. And I'll give a summary on five tips for purpose alignment. Number one, investing time to understand why and do it at the right time. 
Two is think about when are you at your best? When are you flourishing? When does time transcend? Or when do you get into what Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi calls flow? And that gives you a good idea of the activities that are really aligned. So for me, when I sat back on that, it was when I'm speaking, uh, when I'm writing, when I'm presenting, it's when I'm working with people to wake them up. Three, this is the supplement, and I don't mean non-soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K. I mean supplement, no matter how busy you are, get some pleasure, get some fun, get some joy in your life. You've heard me say this lots of times. Kids, my my young girls and Archie and Mickey, they play. They have play dates, play dough, play time. The little girls watch play school and they have play lunch. Adults, we do meetings. I've got nothing else to add. Like that's how freaking boring it is if we do back-to-back meetings. So big kids need play. Whatever it is that lights you up, whatever it is that gives you that spark, make sure you build play into your schedule. Number four is just thinking about meaning at work. What are the activities that really give you meaning that, that fill your cup? And number five is when you do get ready for this, it is about three to four months of hard work and it's lifting, it's hard work, it's confusing. But when you get it, the light goes on. Yeah, I, I couldn't disagree with this one bit. I, I've gone through this process myself, and you've been my role model on this because when I saw you make that decision that time, I have since made that decision multiple times in my career where I know the money would be nicer. And I know the title sounds exciting, but I also know three months in, I would be the most miserable person in that role because it didn't excite me. And it wouldn't have kept me going. And sometimes those decisions, people around you go, are you crazy? And I think you just got to, I often say to people, make sure you get your own meaning and self-respect from yourself and not rely on others. In other words, you know, do do what's right for you. And I think one important thing too there, we, we talk about supplementing is that I think people don't always prioritize themselves. And I'm not saying that's they're terrible people for doing that. As a matter of fact, they're the opposite. But you really got to put your own oxygen mask on before others. You re- we've talked about this before in other podcasts. You absolutely have to put in those things that give you joy, pleasure, disconnection, allow you to be your best because it's impossible to be your best for others if you don't. Self-care is not selfish. It really is important to put yeah. yourself first yeah. or to yeah. nurture, to renew so you can be the best version of yourself. Hey, we've spoken about a lot today. I really like that we've got some of the frameworks that still say the same, right? The science around this, the the frameworks, but we've added from personal experience and we've changed the order and we've changed even the content on those five areas that inoculate people against burnout. For anyone who has been listening to this and wants the detail in the white paper with all the research and even more content, go to andrewmay.com slash burnoutproofwhitepaper. That's andrewmay.com slash burnoutproofwhitepaper. That link is in the show notes. Dr. Tom, final message, your parting wisdom today to help people become burnout-proof. It might be a controversial one, but don't allow yourself to get sucked into the burnout narrative. I'm not saying you may not have symptoms of burnout. I'm not saying you may not be experiencing burnout, but it is highly contagious. And so, you know, if you feel like you are on that burnout trajectory, if you do feel like you meet the definition of burnout, that then seek help. Yeah, don't go to somebody else's burnout because it's incredibly contagious. 
And I think, you know, one of the things we've talked a lot about here is, is personal responsibility. Um, it is very easy to see yourself as a victim when you feel burned out. But actually, we have a lot that we can do to, to we've talked about five areas we can do here. Um, there's heaps we can do. So, don't, you know, be proactive, I guess, is the message. Yeah, I can hear overtones of Albert Bandura, the godfather or the, the psychologist who put self-efficacy on the map. And self-efficacy is the power you have to influence the situation you're in. And to finish with a nerdy frame, the five factors that inoculate you against burnout is all around self-efficacy. Regardless of the environment you're in, these are factors that you can do. Hey, thanks for today. I've got a presentation to do for a bunch of executives on how they can be burnout proof. They're very topical <laughs> when talking about this. So I'm going to shoot. Hey, thank you. Lots of downloads specific to this. So have a look at the show notes. Dr. Tom Buckley, until next time, catch you soon. See you soon, Andrew. Bye. Hi, this is Angela Poon, Operations Director at Strive Stronger, and I'm in the podcasting studio today with Andrew's business manager and executive assistant, Shannon Frost. Hey, Shannon. Hi, Ange. Now, we've just listened to the podcast with Andrew and Dr. Tom on burnout, and Shannon and I wanted to jump in the room and share our reflections on what was discussed because, Shannon, we see and hear so much about burnout in the client discussions that we've had. Absolutely. I'm in all the briefing meetings with Andrew and it's the one topic that comes up over and over again and it's the one outcome every client wants. How do we reduce burnout and make our teams more resilient? So this is a topic I hear about every day. Shannon, I think the part in that podcast that really resonated with me was when Andrew spoke about that Microsoft article, the energy crisis that has been observed. And like you said, talking with the clients that you do when you run uh, the keynotes and the coaching sessions, and it's not just about the physical exhaustion that we're hearing, it's also about that mental, the emotional, the spiritual, environmental exhaustion that's really coming together as well. We've developed the Live Life Score over the last six months and listening to that podcast, it's really confirmed the utility and the benefits of measuring that physical and psychological well-being. We now have something to help our clients to measure and then build the programs to re-energize the team. There's one thing knowing what to do, but it's about actually doing it. And I think time and time again in the programs that we run, sometimes people are hearing things and they're like, oh, right. I used to do that, but I don't do that anymore. And sometimes it's the little things and the small takeaways that actually make a big change. So for example, we're currently running a program with Department of Defense and I'm already hearing people are getting outside more, they're walking more, they're being more deliberate in connecting with others. I'm really energized to hear and see the changes that people have made. Yeah, Shannon, what changes have you seen in our clients? Well, recently we had a feedback session. We have, Andrew does these conference experiences where he comes back four to six weeks after a keynote and we see and really challenge our clients to see if they've made any changes. And the one change everybody seems, that I've noticed people seem to take is that transition time that Dr. Tom and Andrew were talking about. And it's something I do because I think everyone can relate to it. Everyone has to change from work mode to parent mode to partner mode or mm. you know any other modes and roles that you're playing in your life so it just seems to be one of the easiest things that people can do actively today and 
people have been taking that time when they're walking into the next meeting, taking that breath to just compose themselves and transition into the leader they need to be or the colleague they need to be or the mom they need to be. And what about personally for yourself, Shannon? What is it that you've personally taken out from the podcast that you think, oh, that's something I should do more or that's something I've not considered? The one I learned was around human connection and finding that time to really connect with your partner or a really close family member and carving out that time to connect with them so it doesn't just blurt out on a romantic date or a family dinner mm-hmm. or the places you don't want it to be because Andrew said he's been there before, I've been there before. I was just going to say, you're speaking from experience. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have experience doing that and it's so simple and I just went, yeah, that's such a good idea carving out that time to talk about you know debrief on the day or talk about whatever's going on and leaving the fun times to just have fun and not just explode and blurt out all the issues that are happening I like the burnout proof model that they spoke about burnout being when you're in the red and we want people to be dancing in between that green and yellow zone I've never felt burnt out thankfully and I like to make sure I stay between those green and yellow zones but I sometimes have dipped into that orange zone as well so I've definitely felt the symptoms of overwhelm and exhaustion and although I've intuitively known what to do to bring myself out of that I haven't really understood the science behind it so it's really interesting to hear what Dr Tom and Andrew spoke about the things that you can do and some of these quite simple things about connection about active recovery about finding joy and purpose all of those things sound so simple but to actually be much more conscious and to do it and being a mum when I talk to a lot of my friends when I talk to some of my clients they're often feeling guilty when they take time out for themselves so I think this is a good reminder that we actually have to do these things that we have to remove the guilt when we're doing things for ourselves because in order for us to show up 100% with our family, with our colleagues, we actually have to show up 100% for ourselves first. Yeah, it comes down to that putting your oxygen mask on first before you can help other people. So and we've had a great day, a productive day. We've had our internal meetings, we're podcasting now. It's about, it's coming to the end of the day. So I think it's time to wrap up these reflections and practice what Andrew and Dr. Tom are preaching and what we're always practicing. And so I'm thinking we go for a nice walk, downregulate and maybe find a bottle of this can of Prime. It sounds interesting. (laughs) I'm not sure about the can of Prime, but the walk sounds wonderful. Let's do it.